Hey now, welcome to the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. We will get to the show in a moment. We normally save these cold opens, unfortunately, for somber uh, news, but literally seconds after I finished taping today's episode on AEW and NXT, WWE officially announced that they have signed Gable Stevenson to a contract. It's one of the more unique, uh, modern, and forward-thinking, I will even say, uh, contracts that I can recall in WWE history. And because of that, and because of how important Gable Stevenson is um, to the future, maybe, of professional wrestling, I did want to give it a minute or so off the top of this show. Basically, uh, WWE has signed Stevenson to a name, image, and likeness deal, which means they will be able to sponsor him and pay him, despite him returning to Minnesota to defend his NCAA heavyweight championship. Obviously, uh, he also won the Olympic gold medal this year at the Olympics, but Stevenson is returning to college. He's going back to the University of Minnesota for his senior season. He's going to defend the heavyweight championship while simultaneously being paid by WWE for his name, image, and likeness rights. Basically, they're going to be sponsoring him. But what's extremely interesting about this is that WWE is going to build or construct or rent, whatever, a nearby professional wrestling training facility, either near the university, near his home, or somewhere in Minnesota, so that he can begin his WWE pro wrestling training while simultaneously competing as an amateur. And it seems to be that as soon as he graduates or as soon as his eligibility is over in college, he will then become a member of the WWE roster. Who knows, considering how talented this guy already is, perhaps he joins the main roster as soon as he leaves college. But for WWE, with all of this craziness that's been surrounding the company, losing members of their roster to AEW, mismanagement in terms of how contracts um, have been uh, created and and signed and updated and and not renewed properly, uh, for them to come up with a deal like this, unique, like I said, modern, different, forward-thinking, it's a real big feather in WWE's cap. They have signed a heavyweight champion, an Olympic gold medalist. It's true. It's damn true. Lucky for Gable Stevenson, he does not have a broken freaking neck. But I did want to make sure this was addressed as soon as possible on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. So therefore, we did it cold open style. With that, let me get you into today's show. And we will certainly talk more about Gable Stevenson and other things happening in WWE on Tuesday's episode. Let's get to it. Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times, data, with episode 210 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, Getting Over is back once again and we here today are going to be talking all things AEW and NXT. We're talking the fallout from AEW All Out, as well as the final black and gold episode of the NXT brand. You will find out what the hell is to come next week from NXT, but what we do know is this is the last black and gold episode, truly the end of an era. We have a loaded show for you once again today. We'll talk NXT up the front. We'll go to AEW. I also have a ton of tweets and DM slides, a bunch of questions from you, the listeners, uh, stemming from AEW All Out all the way through Dynamite on Wednesday. I promise we would get to them. This is the perfect time to do so. So we have a loaded show, like I said. Vintage Chris Vanini is not here. Once again, the Silver King is all by myself. Uh, So yeah, I'll be riding solo today, but Chris will be back next week for the WWE show. He'll be with us to talk AEW. Just a a busy week in his life, some family obligations. We wish him the best. Uh, We're glad all is well with him. Uh, And Chris will be back, like I said, next week to break everything down with you guys. Also, excuse my singing off the top. I know I am not cut out to, uh, you know, sing. So I won't probably ever do that again. Regardless, like I said, there's a lot to talk about today on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. Let's not waste 
too much time because I need to remind you that getting over is all about So go ahead. Stop being marks for yourselves and go back to being a mark for me. Go back to being marks for this podcast. Head on over to Apple Podcasts. Drop a five-star rating and review. Let people know how much you love this show. Tell them why they should listen to the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. The goal here is to get more and more listeners each week. And guess what? It's been working because as I told you guys, our WWE SummerSlam instant analysis, it is indeed the number one most listened to episode in podcast history. But guess what? That is not the only show climbing up our rankings because the CM Punk return episode, the surprise uh, instant reaction episode, that is the number three show in podcast history and the AEW All Out 2021 instant analysis from this past Sunday is the number five episode in podcast history. So I appreciate you guys listening yourselves, telling your friends, I don't know, maybe we're doing something right here. It feels good to be listened to. I can tell you that. Also, please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. We release every episode on Twitter. We let you know as soon as it gets posted. Uh, We also tweet all week long about wrestling, not just what's happening on the shows, but news. We do polls. Uh, We also do live shows on Twitter spaces 30 minutes before the kickoff slash pre-show slash buy-ins of the major wrestling pay-per-view. So there's every reason to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. So with all of that out of the way, let's move into NXT. Uh, As I said, the final episode of the Black and Gold edition of the show, which really has lasted, I think, from 2012 all the way through 2021, which is wild. And when you talk about the golden age of NXT, everywhere from like 2014 all the way to 2020 was just a special time in professional wrestling. If you watched NXT during that era, you just saw some of the best wrestling the WWE has ever produced. And we don't know what's going to happen going forward, but we can sit back, remember what we had, and certainly what we got one more time on Tuesday night. So I'm going to go through this episode of NXT in order because there was not one major storyline that required me talking about it off the top. Uh, And then once we go through NXT, we will talk AEW, which will include uh, Dynamite, including the fallout from All Out, a little bit from Rampage, as well as all of your DM slides. And if you're anyone listening to the show, maybe you're listening for the first time, you only watch NXT or you only watch AEW. There are timestamps in our episode description, so you can jump uh, to whichever segment you want to listen to. Very easy to find, very easy to you know skip forward um, you know, on whatever podcast app you're listening to because, hey, we're on every podcast app. We're also on Spotify. We're on your Google Home and Alexa, Amazon Alexa devices, so you can listen to us in your house. Any way you want to listen to Getting Over, you can listen to us. I'm just glad that you already are. So as I said, let's talk NXT. The show opened with Ember Moon against Kaylee Ray. It was just as great as I hoped it would be. Uh, KLR was caught in a tree of woe and ate a ton of kicks to the head. Uh, She hit a tornado DDT off the ropes for a near fall, but Moon lifted her and tossed her over the ropes before delivering a tope suicida. KLR came back with a senton bomb for a near fall, and Moon basically hit like a one-winged angel, but instead of KLR being on her shoulders, she was behind her. So it was like even more impressive somehow than Kenny Omega's finisher. It was great. Uh, after that, they countered each other a bunch and KLR finally hit her gory bomb, which is her finisher for anyone who's not familiar for the win. Uh, this was absolutely fantastic from start to finish. They got over 15 minutes. I gave it four stars and an A minus. That's how much I liked it. Going from SmackDown on Friday all the way through Dynamite on Wednesday. I think this was the second best match across any of the four shows. The best one being Roman Reigns and Finn Balor, of course. Uh, but this one being second best, it was really damn good. I I loved it. Uh, After the match, Moon said she hated feeling the way she does and now knows what she has to do after a rough three months in NXT. Now, there's so many incredible women in NXT that it's tough to know what's next for her and what's next for KLR, even though she seems set to challenge for the Women's Championship maybe in a month or two is what I'm thinking. Obviously, Raquel Gonzalez is another challenger um, in Frankie Monet. We'll talk about that in a moment. 
But it seems like they're positioning KLR to very quickly get a title shot. As far as Ember Moon, her promo made it sound like she could potentially join up with Mandy Rose's group. But if not that, I don't know exactly what they're going to do with her. Um, She's great. The NXT women's division is great. This match was an example of that. Uh, We got Santos Escobar against Carmelo Hayes in a singles match. Escobar put Hayes in a lion tamer on the steel steps, but the rookie came back with a springboard leg drop with Escobar draped on the ropes and a corkscrew cutter for a near fall. Hayes flew over the ropes for a really inventive DDT, only to be body slammed by Electro Lopez at ringside. Escobar immediately hit the phantom driver and got the one, two, three. It was strange that a simple body slam outside the ring hurt Hayes so much. I'd have much preferred Lopez running him into the post or the steel steps or something like that. But I guess the idea that she's strong enough to fight a man was what they were trying to get across, that she was able to body slam him. It was a good match, but nowhere near what I thought was possible, given these two are extremely talented. I don't know, like a 3.25 stars, like a, a B, something like that. It was it was fine. Not, nothing spectacular. Uh, later, Hit Row was in the studio, admitting they got caught sleeping by Legato del Fantasma, but Swerve promised that will never happen again. B. Fab then called out Lopez, saying now they got a problem. I just loved everything about this, the look and feel of the space, the promo style, the entire package. We say this all the time. The entire package of Hit Row is straight money, and it is definitely a main roster act. Uh, We also had Brutus and Julius Creed face Chucky Viola and Paxton Averill, or Averill. I'm not sure what his name was. A couple jobbers. Now, the Creed's are the Casper brothers, the collegiate wrestlers, Jacob Casper, you know, the smaller one of the two, being the most notable one. And the two jobbers, Chucky and Paxton, looked like the most ultimate jobbers of all time. Uh, Brutus, who is Jacob Casper, just chucked Paxton like over the top rope, literally just threw him over the top rope. It was crazy. They tagged each other in by slapping each other's faces. There were some crazy fast fireman carries. They got, they just ragdolled these jobbers up and down the ring with really crazy intense moves. I thought the Creed's had such a bland look to them, but holy shit, this thing was legitimately nuts. They were vicious and awesome. It felt like I was watching a modern day Steiner Brothers. It was as good of a debut as you could expect from a couple of guys who have zero professional wrestling experience. I still think they need to work on their look. They were wearing plain black singlets. That was on purpose because they're part of Diamond Mine, but their faces are very plain and very, you know, I don't know, this is not meant as a, as an insult in any way, but very middle America, a couple dudes from Kansas type of look. They need gruffer exteriors. They just need a little bit more character. Maybe it's facial hair, maybe it's haircuts. I'm not exactly sure. They need to develop their look. But in terms of ability and intensity and potential, they showed gobs of it during NXT on Wednesday, and that was very exciting. Uh, There was a women's tag team match uh, for the championships. The first defense for Io Shirai and Zoe Stark, the champions, against Caden Carter and Casey Cantanazaro. Carter had a great hot tag as usual, but ate a 619 and a missile dropkick from Shirai. The Caseys did a cool wheelbarrow moonsault type of move. Shirai did double knees in the corner, but Stark tagged herself in and accidentally ran into Shirai a moment later. Uh, Carter caught her with a cool face buster. Casey climbed on her shoulders and hit a really big flying splash but Shirai springboard missile drop kicked Carter into the fall to break it. Uh, Stark caught Casey with her flipping lifted knee and Shirai hit the moon over moonsault perfectly for the one, two, three. There was some little girl who was screaming uh, throughout the whole finish of the match and it was so freaking distracting. I know it was a taped episode, so you know there was nothing they could really do, I guess, but man, it was annoying. Uh, other than that, there were some great spots in the match. The Casey's aren't the cleanest wrestlers, which made the match a tad clunky given that Stark and Shirai are indeed so good in the ring. But Shirai and Stark are fantastic and they worked really well together. Again, it was a, you know, 3.25 star B match, nothing really to write home about, which was a little bit disappointing. And with Caden Carter and Casey Cantanazaro losing this, I've been saying this for, it feels like four months now, they should be on the main roster. It's not that they're so incredibly good that they're going to lift the entire division, but they're the perfect jobber women's tag team that fans will love because they do a lot of flippy, cool moves and they actually work together. They are not needed anymore in NXT. They are needed on the main roster. They should definitely move up. Uh, After this was over, the Casey's were attacked by Mandy Rose, Gigi Dolan, and JC Jane. 
which to me tells me one of two things. Either they're about to start a feud with Gigi Dolan and JC Jane, or that's the way to write them off NXT. I have a feeling it's the former, not the latter. Uh, Mandy was wearing a similar face mask to Sheamus after eating that basement dropkick from Saray last week. I presume what we're going to get is a six-woman match uh, with the three heels against both faces and Saray. But Mandy's storyline, it's kind of exactly what we expected, and it could end up working out. It's one of those things where we're just going to have to wait and see what happens. Uh, Now, NXT gave us the bachelorette and bachelor parties for the index wedding, which is happening next week. Candice LeRae reluctantly set it up for Indy Hartwell, and Indy toasted her for showing her the way, thanking her. Then LeRae reluctantly toasted Index, and the joke was that no one at the table were actually friends with Indy. Uh, Cora Jade was there. She's one of the new women's wrestlers in NXT. She had a great line joking that it's a WWE wedding, so everyone knows it's never going to happen. I thought that was really funny. little inside baseball, breaking the fourth wall type of deal. Now, the bachelorette party was okay. It wasn't really that much fun of a segment. The bachelor party segment was incredible and maybe one of the best outside the ring things NXT has ever done. So it was paid for by Cameron Grimes and that is how he joined the party, even though historically him and Dexter Loomis, of course, have been at odds. And not only that, the zombie referee from last year's Halloween Havoc, the match between Loomis and Grimes, actually was one of the best men or or one of the um, pieces of Dexter Loomis's wedding party, which was hysterical. They went go-kart riding and axe throwing with Dexter Loomis obviously being proficient at axe throwing and teaching Johnny Gargano how to do it. Suddenly they started getting along. They went to laser tag and Loomis just like knocked people out and choked them out instead of shooting them, which allowed Gargano to shoot them while they were laying on the ground. The zombie turned out to be Canadian, which just popped me massively. And Gargano at the end gave Loomis a high five before officially welcoming him to the family. So like I said, the bachelor party part of this wasn't very good. The bachelor party was downright hysterical. It was indeed one of my favorite things that NXT's ever done outside the ring. It was just freaking hysterical. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that. Obviously with the high five situation at the end, that tells me Austin Theory's probably coming back next week, that would make a ton of sense. Whether it's to invade the wedding, whether it's to beat up Dexter Loomis, I'm not exactly sure, but I can't wait for the wedding. I can't wait to see if Theory comes back, what that means for the way. It was great to see Candice LeRae involved, even though she was showing for the first time uh, with her pregnancy, and obviously she can't get in the ring and do anything physical, but for her to still be involved was great. Everything about this really, really worked. NXT deserves a lot of credit for putting on something fun and funny and just purely professional wrestling, sports entertainment, true entertaining stuff. It was it was awesome. Uh, Mei Ying uh, made her in-ring debut and fought Virginia Ferry, who I think is totally brand new. I've never seen her before. Ying did some throat chops and chest thrusts. She then finished Ferry with the Tongan death grip, uh, which brought her down to the canvas for a pinfall. It worked in the context of a squash over a jobber, but I don't think this character, the Mei Ying character, has any runway or potential for long-term success. Xia Lee, maybe. Boa, not really. Mei Ying, it's not working. Like, Tian Shaw, when it all first started coming together, it seemed like it was going to work. It seemed like it was going to be this really interesting, unique, different thing that NXT was going to do with its Chinese talent. And now it just kind of seems like something that's on TV. It's almost like the early days of Dark Order, where like you're watching it and you're like, okay, they're trying something but it's really not very good and it shouldn't be utilized. Now, the difference between this and Dark Order is Dark Order, they tried to make it a upper card act. Uh, This is clearly a low card act. So at least it's something that we don't have to pay too much attention to, but it was weird. Uh, We had a tag team championship match in the main event of the show. MSK defending their titles against Oni Lorcan and Danny Burch. Wesley had a fantastic hot tag as usual, including a German suplex and a falling roundhouse kick. MSK did the still unnamed push moonsault, but Birch broke the fall. Nash Carter delivered a second rope moonsault outside, but Lorcan blocked the senton bomb. MSK got caught in an ankle lock and a crossface simultaneously, but Carter threw Lorcan into the other guys to break up the submission. Uh, MSK followed with a springboard flip neckbreaker, also still unnamed, despite it being their finisher, for the win. This was another great contrast of styles match for MSK. 
they got to really show their tremendous skill set. I actually gave it about, you know, 3.75 stars and a B plus. It started really slow. It had the potential to be better, but it just never actually got there. So after the match, Pete Dunne and Ridge Holland attacked Lorcan and Birch, ending the faction officially almost before it started. It's only been around for, I don't know, less than a month, I guess. Now, with Dunne in the main event singles division, I don't really know where that leaves Ridge Holland. And by the way, Holland like came back in the ring and took another shot on the guys afterward. So I thought, I thought this whole thing was really curious booking. Holland wanting to take out Lorcan specifically makes sense because he's the one who accidentally injured him, uh, you know, all those months ago, 10, 11 months ago. And then in a social media video after the show went off the air, Holland said Dunn gave him the okay to attack them. So maybe they are going to make him the Wardlow to Dunn's MJF, except they're closer to peers as opposed to more like uh, Dolph Ziggler and Drew McIntyre is probably how I would look at it. If so, I love that booking. It makes a lot of sense for both to be pursuing singles careers, but simultaneously have a team they can fall back on. And that's something I've talked about that WWE should do with singles competitors for years, but they should actually be doing it right now with the women's division on the main roster. So I found that to be interesting. I'm a big fan of Dunn. I'm a big fan of Holland, but there seems to be some lacking charisma here. Neither is a great promo. Both are angry, strong British dudes. This wasn't bad or anything. It just lacked excitement that a moment like this should have brought when someone turns on someone else. So we'll see what happens going forward here. Maybe Holland helps Dunn beat Samoa Joe eventually. That would make some sense. We'll find out. Um, William Regal backstage during the show announced that Tommaso Ciampa, Kyle O'Reilly, LA Knight, and Pete Dunn will compete in a fatal four-way number one contendership next week on the debut of this new NXT. Now that's obviously going to be an incredible match, but Ciampa, O'Reilly, and Dunn have all gotten so many chances at the title recently. Dunn should be the one to eventually beat Samoa Joe for the championship. So because of that, my guess is going to be that LA Knight wins this. That way Joe can just beat him. O'Reilly cut a promo saying he didn't really want the title, but he wanted what it represents, which is being the best professional wrestler in the world. Knight also cut a cocky promo while driving in a convertible about it being his time. And Champa said it's been too long since he's focused on regaining Goldie, but now he can do it with Timothy Thatcher injured. So they set this up nicely. I'm sure the match next week is going to be great. But yes, my prediction is LA Knight winning. Frankie Monet in a very quick backstage segment said everyone's going to be talking about her next week when she wins the NXT women's title. So next week's going to have that title match, the index wedding, and the fatal four-way number one contendership for the uh, NXT championship. And that's a hell of a show to start with whatever this rebranding is going to be. The NXT ratings uh, were down about 100,000 week over week, which is really strange because this was a way better show than last week's show. I did see that the news got a, a very big rating on Tuesday night, so perhaps that factored into it. But I thought it was strange for that show to be down so much, really for no good reason. And this, like I said, was indeed the last black and gold episode of NXT. It was basically a perfect send-off for the brand. It was a taste of everything that we love about NXT so much. We got great wrestling, effective storytelling, well-placed comedy, and just two hours of a fun wrestling television show. It's a shame to see this version of NXT end. I'm cautiously hopeful that the aesthetic will change while the rest of the show stays true to the stuff that we like. Mixing in more young talent is not a bad thing. It is supposed to be developmental. It did get away from that, but we're not going to know until we see it. And then lastly here, before we move over to AEW to talk about the fallout and Rampage and Dynamite and all that type of stuff, obviously uh, late on Wednesday, uh, WWE sent out a press release announcing that Paul Levesque, aka Triple H, underwent a successful procedure last week at Yale New Haven Hospital for a cardiac event that he had suffered. The episode was caused, WWE said, by a genetic heart issue and that Paul is expected to make a full recovery. That's, of course, incredible news um, that he's going to make a full recovery, of course, not that he had a cardiac event, which is incredibly unfortunate. It's just good to see that he got the treatment he needed, obviously, went to a great hospital. You know, a lot of stuff has happened recently with WWE and NXT and Triple H's name 
has been thrown out a lot, um, many in positive ways, many times in negative ways, uh, and also people just kind of saying, hey, look what Vince is doing to ruin uh, Triple H's baby, this thing he's built in NXT that so many people loved for so long. Um, so for this to happen on top of all of that, there were so many ridiculous social media posts and comments, you know, that were just so unnecessary and so inappropriate regarding this. This is a human being. What is most important is that Paul recovers 100%. I hope he's able to do that so that he can be there next week and, and see this new vision of NXT off, you know, christen it almost to some degree. But if he's not, obviously the hope is he gets back as soon as he possibly can. I just hope that the guy is healthy and happy. And obviously he is his wife and kids and, and family uh, that care about him. So best wishes from us to Paul Levesque, Triple H, who in my interactions with him has been nothing but uh, incredible. Honestly, he's given us a lot of access, myself a lot of access, um, answered questions honestly when I've had the opportunity to ask them to him. And sure, he keeps a lot of things close to the vest and he can be a little bit long-winded as even himself will admit. Uh, but in my interactions with him historically, and it's been a number of years at this point, He's been a really great and nice guy. And I certainly personally and, and on behalf of the show, of course, wish him the best. So let's move over to AEW. We're going to talk one match from Rampage, but mostly the fallout from All Out at Dynamite. I'm also going to answer some of your DM slides and tweets at the end uh, before we get out of here on the show. But I want to set the stage for my breakdown here. Because I went into AEW Dynamite on Wednesday more excited for the show than I probably ever have been. Or if not number one, it was the second or third most anticipated episode of Dynamite that I've ever you know gone into watching. So sure, my expectations were high, but the goal for AEW in this show was to capitalize off their insane amount of momentum they had from All Out. And while this show was not bad, it wasn't. It was incredibly mediocre, which given the attention coming out of Sunday, mediocre is actually a negative when most weeks mediocre is mediocre. It's fine. It's just okay. So there was a significant disappointment from me as a viewer watching Dynamite on Wednesday. And as I break the show down, you hopefully will understand why. And anyone, of course, who has questions or comments about it, you can tweet me uh, and you know I'll normally tweet you back. So let's get through the show and then I'll kind of break it down at the end as well. In fact, we'll do the final 30 minutes of Dynamite to open this and then we'll talk about the opening 90 minutes uh, in order over the duration. So the Elite hit the ring at about 9.30. Don Callis ranted about the Young Bucks being screwed out of the titles and then the Bucks announced Adam Cole to the ring. He stepped up to Tony Schiavone and promised to kick his ass if he ever looked at Britt Baker the wrong way, calling him a nerd like 10 times. It was kind of gratuitous. Cole said AEW is the greatest company in the world because of the elite, and he's a once-in-a-generation talent. He put over everyone in the ring, calling Kenny Omega a once-in-a-generation talent, which he just said about himself. Um, but he put over everyone in the ring except the Good Brothers, who were just standing there. He didn't even mention them. And he said the elite is complete. He also said he'd make his in-ring debut next week, which AEW later announced would be against Frankie Kazarian. So Cole's promo was okay. He was incredibly confident on the mic as always, but I don't know. The crowd just wasn't really reacting that strongly to it. I, I think the Shivani thing was meant to get him heel heat when the crowd may otherwise cheer him because they were excited to see him. But watching this entire thing, Seeing him stand next to the Bucks, seeing Tony Schiavone stand over him, seeing him uh, next to Kenny Omega, Adam Cole just kind of felt like a small fish in a big pond versus the other way around. He was a big fish in a small pond in NXT, and it was like the crowd wanted to cheer for him, but knew it couldn't. So maybe it was an odd crowd and an odd first impression. We know Cole is incredible. We know he's a great wrestler. He's going to have incredible matches there. I may be alone in this, but this just did not hit me right. So then Kenny Omega grabs the mic and he starts speaking and Brian Danielson immediately cuts him off 
just like he did before. The crowd went wild for them staring each other down, of course, as they should. Danielson grabbed the mic and immediately issued a challenge to Omega, who told him off mic that's not how it works in AEW. Danielson called him scared and put him in the crossface before being attacked by the elite. Then he got saved by Christian Cage, Frankie Kazarian, and Jurassic Express. Brandon Cutler was left alone. He ate a running knee from Danielson as the crowd popped. So seeing Omega and Danielson across from each other was incredible. On one hand, I hope they don't skirt the rankings and just just give Danielson a title match. But on the other hand, I absolutely hope they do. So either way, I'll be okay with it. Uh, My guess is we're going to get Omega and Danielson in Queens, the Arthur Ashe Stadium show, in a non-title match. I think that would make the most sense. As far as this segment, it was very WCW, but not necessarily in a bad way. It was just a bit convoluted. Fans wanted to hear from Danielson like on his own, alone in the ring with a mic, and we didn't get that. We barely got him to speak at all. Don't get me wrong, it was good. It was the second best thing on Dynamite top to bottom, but his first TV appearance not being great, to me, was a shame. I also think there's a scenario where we could possibly get a you know blood and guts match where it's those five guys, the Jurassic Express, Christian, Frankie Kazarian, and Daniel Bryan, sorry, Brian Danielson, against the elite. I think that is a potential, but they just did blood and guts not that long ago. So I don't know that they're going to go back to it and do it again. I just am not exactly sure what the plan is here, but Omega Danielson right off the bat, that is obviously extremely exciting. So we'll move over to the main event, which was John Moxley against Minoru freaking Suzuki in America on AEW Dynamite. But this thing, man, I got to tell you, it was an absolute mess. First of all, the bell rang with 10 minutes left in the show, and then the match immediately went to commercial break. By the time it came back, we got about six minutes and 30 seconds of TV time left, the final two minutes of which was not in the ring. It happened after the match was over. So we got about like five minutes of actual John Moxley versus Minoru Suzuki wrestling together in the ring uninterrupted. Uh, they bit each other in the head and traded some strong style blows. Suzuki got busted open around the eye and kicked out after one following a paradigm shift and a clothesline. Suzuki then licked his own blood, which was obviously sick, and wiped it on his chest. But Mox hit him with a second paradigm shift and got the win in a match that lasted eight minutes. Then Mox spent the final two minutes of TV time just like walking in the crowd and getting cheers. And I'm not exaggerating when I say it was two minutes. I literally literally looked at my clock. It was two full minutes of him walking around getting cheers. So the coolness and uniqueness of Minoru Suzuki fighting Mox in AEW was way more special than the actual match itself, which was short, uneventful, and honestly, it was shitty, both in the ring and from a production and planning standpoint. The match may have ended early because of Suzuki's injury, but I can't blame them if they did that. However, that's only a two-minute difference. So even if that didn't happen and it went two more minutes, it still would have been a really short, uneventful match. Mox Suzuki is a dream match for a lot of people, This was the second time they fought, but this was an absolute dud. It was a lackluster way to end a show that already did not hit the right notes for me. There were so many things that could have been cut from this episode, including five or 10 minutes from the opening match, which was Dustin Rhodes and Malachi Black, a Dan Lambert promo, which was exceedingly repetitive and went nowhere. And then all of those shitty back and forth tape promos that they did that probably took up, I don't know, three to four minutes on their own. But it was really poorly done by AEW top to bottom. And if you are someone who listens and always thinks I'm overly critical of AEW, stop and think about what this was and what I just explained to you. Be honest with yourself and admit this was not good. You just have to. And it was the main event, which made it even worse. All right, so we'll move on with the rest of the show. There was one follow-up thing from Rampage to talk about that we did not on the incident analysis, so I'll do that here. Uh, We had Malachi Black against Lee Johnson on Rampage. Black dominated Johnson and then handed him a chair, turning around to offer himself up as a sacrifice. When Johnson finally got to his feet to try to use the chair, Black wiped him out clean with a black mask and put his boot on Johnson's face after the 1-2-3. Dustin Rhodes then chased Black out of the ring, challenged him to a match on Dynamite. This was simple, but I thought it was great on Rampage. The match was basically all psychology and storyline. 
Maybe it wasn't the best place thing to have on a go-home show to a major pay-per-view that Black was not on. But given Rampage was only one hour, it was fine for it to be there. And I really liked everything about it. The same cannot be said for what we got on Dynamite when Malachi Black fought Dustin Rhodes. Black dumped Dustin outside, ripped off the turnbuckle pad, and went after his knee. Black dominated uh, Dustin, I almost called him Justin, hit a pump knee and threw Cody's boot at him. Dustin hit a Canadian destroyer for a near fall, but Black dodged him into the top of the turnbuckle that was exposed. Then he hit Black Mass to Dustin's shoulder for the win. Dustin bit on a blood capsule in the finish to make it look like he was bleeding out of his mouth, even though he never got hit in the face. This was clunky as hell. The match was slow and boring. Dustin didn't take half of Black's moves well, including the finisher, and the referee didn't give a shit about the removed turnbuckle pad just like four days after a removed turnbuckle pad led to a distraction finish in a pay-per-view title match. And that's nonsensical by comparison. Is removing the turnbuckle pad okay? Or is it something that needs to be fixed by the referee right away? AEW needs to decide. You can't do it. Like, like there's so many other ways to book matches to do things that are completely contradictory to one another inside of four days just makes no sense. I, I, I criticized WWE massively this week for the spot with the Usos running people into the ring post, which is never a disqualification when it's through the turnbuckles in the ring. And then they got disqualified in a match for it. Same shit here. Like pick a pick an avenue, pick a booking decision. It's just, it's a total mess. I dislike this entire thing immensely, despite really liking the stuff with Black and Johnson on Friday during Rampage. So this was a huge disappointment. Uh, CM Punk hit the ring in the second segment, which seems to be his spot with an open mic. He got a lot of cheap Cincinnati pops before shouting out Brian Pillman's mother, who was in the crowd, Ruby Soho, Adam Cole, and Brian Danielson. As Joey C at Joey Crisco uh, tweeted me, CM Punk kind of sounded like a corporate hype man, which is like the opposite of the anti-authority CM Punk we all love. He also asked the crowd, what's next? Who should he fight? Uh, so Taz grabbed the mic and preemptively told him not to mention any member of Team Taz. And Punk's like, well, why would you say that? I didn't mention any member of Team Taz. So the whole thing didn't make sense. So they had a clunky back and forth. Punk basically challenged all of Team Taz at the end. And this really accomplished nothing. Punk's promo was not up to his quality level. Plus, I'm not particularly excited for him to go into one of these never-ending Team Taz feuds where he fights two or three different people and they promo it for four weeks before the match happens. There's a uh, interference in the match. They have to have it again. If this entire thing is Punk versus Ricky Starks one-on-one in a single match, that's going to be incredible. I want to see that match. I can't wait. Very excited. If it's Hobbs for one match and then Ricky Starks for one match, that's okay too. But this thing needs to get wrapped up like inside of one month. You have four weeks to do those two matches and end the Team Taz storyline. Otherwise, this shit's going to drag on and I do not want to see this drag on another never-ending Team Taz storyline. Speaking of Team Taz, Powerhouse Hobbs fought Dante Martin. Hobbs caught Martin with a tope suicida and threw him into the post in a great spot. Martin hit a big missile dropkick for a near fall, then a tope con hero. But Hobbs caught him flying with a spine buster that everyone on commentary, including legendary wrestling play-by-play men, Jim Ross and Tony Schiavone, called a powerbomb for some reason, even though it was not a powerbomb, it was a spine buster. It was just weird I wanted to call that out. Hobbs was probably not the ideal opponent for Martin to showcase his skill. There was a huge differential in terms of talent, size, and just ability. Uh, but it was fine. It was, it was nothing negative by any means. Uh, Dan Lambert and the men of the year were in a suite again. Lambert cut his exact same promo and got STFU chants from the crowd, but the actual words. He challenged any of the top guys backstage to step up to the men of the year. The crowd wasn't buying it. It wasn't enjoying it, best I could tell. And I'm not enjoying it either. We've now had four weeks of Lambert and three weeks that are identical to each other. It's time to advance this or end it at this point. The first time we saw Lambert, it was great. He cut an awesome promo in Miami. The crowd was hot for him. Everything else has progressively gotten worse. And it makes no sense that he brought UFC people to three shows. Now he's only with the men of the year. And is he acting as their manager? Why do we need him? Both those guys can speak. Ethan Page and Scorpio Sky can cut promos. None of this makes sense. And 
It took up a spot on the show that literally took time away from a main event that could have used it, considering you had John Moxley against Minoru Suzuki on your fucking television. Uh, now, the best segment of the show, not much of a surprise, came when MJF hit the ring. He reminded fans he beat Chris Jericho four times, including Sunday, before getting screwed. As I noted on our instant analysis, MJF did indeed get screwed. Uh, he shit on Cincinnati, tried to say it wasn't cheap heat. Obviously, it was cheap heat, uh, but he did a great job at it as usual. He dared people to jump the guardrail. Then he threatened Pillman's mom and daughter, who were both at ringside. Uh, Junior, Brian Pillman Jr., predictably made his entrance in a Bengals jersey uh, and said, Cincinnati breeds badasses. MJF called out his mom's drug habits and said she should have swallowed. I just howled. I thought it was hysterical. Uh, Then when Wardlow tried to help, MJF called him out for not stepping in Sunday when he should have against Chris Jericho. Wardlow turned his back and MJF said Pillman should have been aborted. Uh, Pillman attacked him, obviously, when someone says that to you. Wardlow was slow to help twice, ensuring that Pillman actually got a few shots in on MJF before both members of the Varsity Blondes got laid out by Wardlow and MJF. Later in the trainer's room, Pillman announced he would fight MJF in Queens, and Max Caster returned to give him flowers before challenging him to a fight on Rampage next week. So clearly Pillman will beat Caster one-on-one. That'll you know elevate him a little bit and get him ready for the match with MJF in Queens, which MJF, of course, will win. Now, this was perfect, and it was the best thing I wrote for the first 90 minutes of Dynamite by far. It turned out to be the best thing on the entire show. There was no forced quick match like you would get in WWE, just great mic work from MJF to create a feud and a reasoning for an upcoming match. It's a huge step down from Jericho, of course, but MJF right now basically has nowhere to go uh, because he's a heel, the champion's a heel, and they seem to not want to give him a title match. My assumption is when Hangman Page eventually wins the title, MJF will eventually, even further down the line, be the one to take it off him. But MJF right now is almost booked too strong to the point where he can't really lose against anyone else, Chris Jericho being an exception. And you don't want to put a lot of top-tier faces against him because he's just going to have to beat them. I guess the Wardlow feud would be best to happen soon if AEW is willing to pull the trigger on that. But the problem is they're in a faction together. And if you have them feud, that breaks up the faction, which you probably do not want to do. So I'm not exactly sure what they're going to do, but MJF was the star of Dynamite on Wednesday. He was the best person on the entire show who who did their role as perfect as they possibly could. The other person who was great top to bottom on Dynamite was Ruby Soho. And she fought Jamie Hayter in a singles match. Uh, Ruby and Britt Baker got heated backstage with Ruby tearing down Britt's nicknames and Baker insulting Ruby for being stuck in catering the last four years. It was maybe the best backstage women's segment or women's promo segment, period, that AEW has ever given us. So it was cool that we got that. This match opened the top of hour two. They only did that, though, because they wanted to push Brian Danielson later in the show. It got the same booking, double commercial break. It lasted eight minutes. Again, I like that it lasts eight minutes, but if I only get to see four of it on my television, it might as well be a four-minute match. There were some rough spots before Ruby caught Hayter uh, for a win. Baker attacked with a swinging neckbreaker afterward. Rio made a save but got laid out. Then Statlander saved Ruby from getting a stomp on the women's title. So my presumption is we're going to get a six-woman tag team match here, whether on Rampage or Dynamite coming up in the future. That should be cool. I love the idea of Ruby, Rio, and Chris Statlander all kind of teaming together. Hopefully, whenever we get that match, it's not eight minutes. Hopefully, it's you know a 15-minute match where all six women get to work. Um, but this was decent. It was good. It was a nice debut on Dynamite for Ruby herself. And the promo, the fact that we actually got another person in this division who can cut a promo is obviously refreshing, and it's good to see her and Baker going back and forth. Uh, Sean Spears and FTR fought Evil Uno, Stu Grayson, and John Silver in a six-man tag team match. The women of Dark Order tried to set the guy straight before the show. Silver had a good hot tag as usual, but Spears beat him with a Death Valley driver as Dark Order frequently miscommunicated throughout the match. The faction then seemed to implode with guys hitting and pushing each other. The match was nothing, but at least there was a storytelling element to it. So because of that, I was okay with it, but it was really nothing to write home about. In fact, the matches on Dynamite in totality were probably the worst set of wrestling that we've had on Dynamite in a long time. Uh, The show prior to the return of fans, like end of June or early July or whenever it was, 
That was a bad wrestling show too. This is a rare show where the promos on Dynamite actually outshined the wrestling, of which there was not a single notable match on the entire program. Then after this was over, Tully Blanchard called out Sting in a backstage promo and then issued a challenge on behalf of Spears for Darby Allen next week. He also said he would make sure he and Sting got to fight each other one more time. My reaction to both of these was whatever, but Spears is the perfect type of guy for Allen to get a win back against after his loss to CM Punk. I don't want to see Sting and Tully wrestle at a combined age of 129. That's not an exaggeration. I Googled it. Their combined age is 129. Um, I don't want to see that happen. I don't want to see it happen cinematically. I don't want to see it happen in a ring. So just please don't do that. Uh, Eddie Kingston and Miro, guess what? Cut, cut back and forth promos, insulting each other, but not advancing the storyline. I assume they're going to have a rematch with a title change at the Queen show, but they didn't even make a rematch. They, they just kind of talk shit to each other for 30 seconds. Santana and Ortiz did a tape promo saying they're focused on the rest of the division after getting past FTR, but they also did not make a specific challenge, whether to another team or for the titles. Matt Hardy cut one of these and said he wants to shave Orange Cassidy's head. And Orange said, whatever, which is how I assume we all felt. Uh, How is this feud still going on? Why is hair now involved? I don't get it. There was also another back and forth taped promo with Brian Cage and Ricky Starks saying the same thing, presumably setting up another match, but without a planned date. And then there were more taped promos from a bunch of women that were in the battle royal. They all got like 10 seconds each, but no specific challenge or point was really made. Though I do think we'll get Ty Conti and Allie against the Bunny and Penelope Ford sooner than later. Uh, So look, that's Dynamite. And I just gotta say, it was a disappointing episode, right? It doesn't mean it was bad. It just, it was two hours of decent wrestling television, but I assumed that we'd get fireworks and memorable moments like CM Punk when he made his debut on Dynamite and even CM Punk's second uh, appearance. Sorry, Punk made his debut on Rampage. Um, but his debut on Rampage and then his first appearance on Dynamite were both very notable. This really wasn't in any way. We got sparklers instead of fireworks. It just was weird. The matches weren't particularly good. There was a lot of repetitiveness across the entire show. We hate rematches in WWE, but if I'm getting repetitive promos in AEW, that's not really that much better. Uh, It was a combination maybe of my expectations being too high, plus it being a weaker than normal show. It was very similar to the content of MJF's promo. He said, you know, Cincinnati's in the Midwest, which means everything in Cincinnati is mid, aka mediocre. And that's what it was. It felt like the entire show was a mid type of show, a mediocre show. Sean McDermott at I'm Bored Brother noted, it felt like a lot happened without anything actually happening. I think that's kind of a really good way to put it. Um, So to my total surprise, for the first time in a little while at least, NXT hit better for me this week uh, if we're comparing the two shows. But I also have little doubt that what AEW has announced going forward is going to create some really good episodes of television, both for Dynamite and for Rampage. Cole wrestling next week against Frankie Kazarian is a solid way to get him going. And I am looking forward to Rampage. Obviously, we have the Andrade El Idolo against Pac Match, which was not even mentioned at all um, in terms of a promo or anything like that on Dynamite. And next week's Dynamite seems to have some good stuff going on. And the Queen's Dynamite, I believe it's September 26th, at the end of the month, that seems like it's going to be a sick card too. So really, we're looking forward to that. But this episode of Dynamite was not particularly good. Now, before we get out of here, I did get a bunch of DM slides about AEW from All Out all the way through the end of Dynamite. So I'm going to kind of read those. Off the top, I do want to thank Nick Flynn for sending me some live video from AEW All Out. I totally would have taken those videos and tweeted them out to everyone normally. Um, but the show was so late. We had to do the instant analysis. I just didn't really have the time to do it. Also, my internet was having problems that night. It was a whole thing. Uh, but Nick, thank you for sending those. I appreciate it. I'm glad you had a good time at what was a fantastic pay-per-view. Uh, so I'm going to read through some of these DMs. Vindaloo Diesel at Arun, A-R-U-N-E. He said, I loved the episode and got everything I wanted, including Punk Clowning on Taz, which was great, but it felt like a different program style with all the folks who needed airtime. It totally did. It felt like a different show and not for the better. Um, This is what we talked about with AEW having a huge roster, which is basically what at Chef Aaron 26 and Brian at B-R-Y-E-N 64 
both wrote in with all of these roster additions from AEW, do you see it creating turmoil to get people people over on television? I don't think it's going to create turmoil within the roster, but this is going to come to a head at some point. There is so much talent on this roster that yes, the AEW roster is what we said of WWE's roster 12 months ago, which is it's bloated. It's overloaded with talent. And the difference between the two though is WWE had five hours of television where it should have been able to use its roster better. AEW only has three hours of television where now it has this huge roster and even if it does use it better, we're not gonna see these people as frequently as we want to see them. And we're gonna see a lot of these really short, shitty, quick promos that AEW gives us on Dynamite and Rampage. And that's really not for me. They're, they're just not good. They're not anything that you can sink your teeth into. Now, I know some people will say, well, sure, but some of these guys are gonna get matches on Dark and Elevation. Like, good for them. Those are YouTube shows. I know there are some people who watch every single thing AEW puts out. I don't. Outside of a very short period of time, I did not watch 205 Live or Main Event in WWE. Um, NXT UK, I even tune into only if there's a particularly good match. What I watch in WWE, AEW, and NXT is what is on my television. And then what's on pay-per-view or special on the WWE Network, you know, like a their equivalent pay-per-view events these days. So if John Moxley ends up fighting Andrade on Dark, which I know that's not the point of Dark and that would never happen, but... Uh, if John Moxley fights Dante Martin, let's say, on Dark, or Andrade fights, um, I don't know, Max Caster on Dark Elevation, like, cool, they're going to have matches, and that's great. I'm not going to see them. The TV product matters, and they got to figure out a way to utilize this roster, not have everyone on TV every week, but still have a lot of stars on TV most weeks. So I, I talked about that. It's like having Andrade featured one week in a match and a storyline, not having him on the next week, bringing him back the week after that. That's okay. You don't need these people on TV every single week, but it seems right now with AEW trying to strike while the iron is hot with CM Punk, Brian Danielson, and Adam Cole, and of course the main event storyline, Kenny Omega and the Elite, all those guys are gonna be on TV every week. That automatically takes at least 45 minutes of the show, which only leaves you another hour 15 to get everyone else on Dynamite. That naturally is going to create some issues. Now, the longer Brian is there and Punk is there, okay, they'll probably appear less. They won't be there every week. In fact, you don't need them every week. Brian one week, Punk the other week is totally fine. But right now, I think fans are expecting everyone every week and it is actively hurting AEW's booking. Uh, Dusty Allen at It's Dusty Allen. He said, somewhere in this new landscape sits Adam Hangman Page. Hopefully he won't be the odd man out. Yeah, um, that's a good point too. You know, there's a lot of this younger talent, uh, Page and MJF being the two primary ones that we need to make sure are not left out in the cold. I don't think AEW is gonna leave either of them out in the cold. Page, I still think is the guy to take the title off Omega. As I said earlier, MJF, I believe, will be the guy to eventually take the title off page. But while that's all happening, what are you doing with your Adam Coles and your Brian Danielsons and your CM Punks and your Andrades and your Miros and all these other guys? That's the question that AEW is going to need to answer. And I don't know how they're going to do that. So it should definitely uh, be interesting. Uh, Greg A. Ryan at the Good Doc GR. He said, so there were no countouts to the Jericho MJF match until there were. You're right, Silver King, the lack of rule following kills AEW storytelling. Um, I didn't actually notice that in that match. I'll certainly take your word for it. I mentioned earlier about the turnbuckles. Um, The fact that you can never have a disqualification in AEW is annoying. I don't want DQs every week. If there was one DQ in a match per month, I would be totally okay with it. Honestly, if there were two DQs in matches per month, so two DQs when you have 15 hours of uh, so anywhere between 12 to 15 hours of TV is totally fine. Everything in AEW seems to be match finish running uh, or something isn't a, a disqualification or something the referee needs to address until it is or the referee not counting tags or not caring about tags and every tag team match being a turmoil match. Just set rules, right? You talk about rankings, you talk about wins and losses matter. If wins and losses matter, rules should matter too. 
And AEW has not proven to us that rules matter. And that, to me, is a problem. Eldred Ryan at Acme Tunes, A-K-M-E Tunes, uh, with the hype coming out of All Out, if Dynamite doesn't pop a huge rating this week, would it be considered a huge failure? I don't know what you want a huge rating to be, right? Uh, I do think it should be a big rating. I think they've been averaging about anywhere between like 950,000 and 1.1 million, I believe is the high end. Uh, I would hope or think that this Dynamite would be 1.2, 1.3, right? Like you've Brian Danielson and Adam Cole, one of the most beloved wrestlers in WWE and one of the most beloved wrestlers in NXT plus CM Punk on a show coming out of a massive pay-per-view. So I would think that this should do a huge rating, uh, uh, definitely the highest of all time it should get, but it should probably be 1.2, 1.3 million. If it's their same exact rating, if it's 1 million, low 1.1 million, I do think that would be a disappointment. I don't know that it would be a huge failure because the purpose of adding Danielson and Cole and all these people, Ruby Soho, it's long-term. It's to make a better product and get people to want to watch it because it's consistently better than the competition. But I do think they will consider it a massive disappointment internally if Dynamite does not do a huge number. And I gotta say, I didn't see a lot of uh, you know, viral stuff that happened. Twitter didn't seem ablaze with AEW. I, I read Reddit uh, with an anonymous account and I didn't see a lot of posts on Reddit uh, during the show. So I don't know what this rating is gonna be, but I am interested to find out what it looks like. And then lastly, Jason Jeter at J Jeter LEO. Uh, he said, I think your analysis during one show was right that Twitch became a major factor in all this change. Do you still think that's the case? Um, I do remember saying that. I do think it is a factor. I don't think it's the greatest factor. Uh, with Adam Cole, it probably helped make it a no-brainer for him, given he did not want to give up that channel when he moved to the main roster. But he also had his girlfriend, fiance, whatever they are, Britt Baker there. A lot of his best friends were with, were with AEW. Um, so I don't, I don't know how big of a role Twitch is going to play. But look, there's some crazy shit happening right now. It was reported, and I, I probably should have mentioned this earlier in the show, it was reported that Kevin Owens' contract is going to end in January 2022 because WWE renegotiated it with him at the start of the pandemic. And I don't know if Owens wanted his deal shorter or if WWE wanted it shorter to save money. That's another incredibly boneheaded decision. And by all indications on Twitter this week, uh, with the way Owens tweeted, he tweeted out, um, you know, location of Mount Rushmore, which was a faction he was in with some people back in the day, Adam Cole included. Um, he changed his location on Twitter to almost there. The Young Bucks changed their Twitter location to there. Um, it, it seems like Kevin Owens is going to leave WWE for AEW. And with Sami Zayn's contract expiring at some point between next month and January 2022, I mean, maybe Sami Zayn winds up there as well. So now maybe you're potentially adding Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn to all the people you already have. Um, it's just unforced error after unforced error, bad decision after bad decision for WWE. But at the same time, is AEW actually going to be able to capitalize on that? I think the rating for Dynamite this week is going to tell us a lot. Um, if they did capitalize and they get a 1.2, 1.3, then okay, holy shit, here we go. If they don't, then maybe there's just a finite fan base for this and maybe AEW ends up overextending itself. The question we also have to ask is we're confident they're gonna use the good people well, we think, we hope, and we're not worried about Hangman Page and MJF, but what happens to like the Jungle Boys, the Darby Allens, the Sammy Guevara's who was on the show last night holding up cue cards and did nothing else. This is a guy who should be wrestling most weeks. What happens to the young tag team talent? What happens to all these women if AEW ever starts bringing in more women along the lines of Ruby Soho that WWE's released? I don't know. I don't have the answers to all these questions. Um, but it's going to be interesting to find out. That's for sure. And we will talk about it every week here on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. So, with all of that, uh, look, appreciate you guys joining as always, right? It was fun to talk NXT 
and AEW next week is going to be exceedingly interesting because not only are we going to see kind of how AEW follows up this Fallout edition of Dynamite from All Out, we also have the first ever new edition of NXT. We don't know what it's going to be. We've seen uh, some vignettes, some packages that they've run where multicolors, a Wale rap track, which I like a lot. I'm very excited that we're going to get that. Um, it looks like the CWC, whether it's still called that, who knows, but it looks like that has been rebuilt and remastered and reimagined um, with fans in a three-sided oval um, around the ring, which is great. That means maybe more fans in the CWC. And the logo's obviously changed. So is it all aesthetic or do we actually get changes in the on-air product? We're going to find out really soon, but I am excited to see it all next week and talk about it with all of you on this show. So with all of that, a reminder that the Getting Over Wrestling podcast is all about So do not forget stopping marks for yourselves and go back to being a mark for me. To go back to being marks for the Silver King Adam Silverstein, vintage Chris Vanini when he does join the show and the Getting Over Wrestling podcast as a whole by heading over to Apple Podcasts, leaving a five-star rating and review. Let people know how much you love this show. Please, those reviews are very important. I know how many listeners we have. I know how many reviews there are on Apple Podcasts. It's nowhere close. The number is exponentially more listeners than reviews. So please, if you are a longtime listener or you're someone new who's really enjoying the show, leave that five-star rating and review. Also, do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. So that's it for today. I will leave you with just three final words. Bye for now.